Father, we do thank you for your cross, for the sacrifice that your son made on it on our behalf. We thank you for his willingness, his obedience, even unto death, as Philippians says. We thank you for his sacrifice and how it allows us to even be here together this morning. We ask that you would bless our study of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, people started becoming, I don't want to say obsessed, but enamored again with the royal family. There was the birth of Prince George of Cambridge that signified the future king that would come after Queen Elizabeth and the other people who would be in line. And in 2013, everybody watched, everybody was looking on to this birth of Prince George knowing that one day, eventually, he would become the king. Until that day, he lives in royalty, he goes to the finest schools, he accompanies his parents on all these different trips, he meets the U.S. presidents, he meets all these different foreign dignitaries. As you can imagine, his every need is attended to, everything he wants, everything he desires, he has. Those who would threaten his well-being and his life are obviously arrested, even those who just post about it on social media are found by the British Secret Service. He's treated like a prince because he's waiting to be the king. If you followed along in the book of Matthew and the last sermon, or if you know anything about the book of Matthew, you know that Matthew emphasizes Christ being the king. Each gospel presents it to us a different aspect of who Christ was. Mark says he was a servant, and even emphasizes the suffering aspect of Christ. Luke emphasizes his humanity, his human nature that he also possessed. And John emphasizes his deity, that Jesus truly was God. But Matthew emphasizes his kingship. If you read the Gospel of Matthew from start to finish, you can't come away other than saying that Jesus is truly the king. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, we have that long genealogy. If you study that genealogy, you realize that Jesus had the right to rule. In his parents' bloodline, he was the rightful heir, rightful son of David or descendant of David, who had the right to be the Jewish king. In chapter 2, the wise men come and greet Jesus, they were called the king makers, and they bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In chapter 3, he's baptized, and God comes down, or he sends down his Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In Matthew chapter 4, he's tested by Satan in the wilderness. In three different temptations, he passes the test. In chapters 5 through 7, he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which detail how people who are part of his kingdom should treat each other and should live in accordance to the king. In chapters 8 through 10, we see various miracles done by Christ, and it demonstrates his authority, that this king not only has the right to rule, but that he has authority over nature and over demons and over people and over healing and over life itself. But we also see the rejection of this king. It's almost like every time you read one of those accounts in Matthew's chapters 
8 and 10, you see Christ do a miracle, maybe even a greater miracle than the one before, and yet the rejection becomes stronger and stronger until Matthew chapter 12 when Christ casts out a demon and the Pharisees say that he did it in the power of Satan or the power of Beelzebub, signifying a rejection of this king. And so then it shifts in the Gospel of Matthew, and in Matthew 13, he starts speaking in parables. He starts speaking in these different stories. And only some people understood them, and others did it. And Christ starts to focus on those who would truly follow him, those who truly had faith. We continue to watch throughout the Gospel of Matthew and see this man, this king, the Son of God grow and continue in his ministry. In chapter 21 of Matthew, he's introduced as king on Palm Sunday. He rides throughout Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's actually what we would celebrate today in our Christian calendar. Today is Palm Sunday, where people cried Hosanna to the highest, to Jesus Christ. And little did those people know, Jesus obviously knew it, that they would be the same people or many of the same people who would put him on the cross. In the next couple chapters, he explains some mysteries of the coming kingdom. And as we read last week, he's betrayed by Judas. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have enough of Christ and they plot to arrest him and destroy him. And it's nearing and nearing the cross. And we left off last week of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out, praying before the Father, knowing what is about to come in the cross, knowing the suffering that he would endure in our passage that we're going to study this morning, but yet being obedient to the will of God. And as we read this text this morning, there's a lot of different things we could think about. There's a lot of different questions that we probably have and that I hope to answer about the cross. But there's one question that I want us to focus on, and that is this. Is he your king? Is Jesus your king? Because even in his crucifixion, even in his death on the cross, I don't think you can walk away without recognizing that Jesus is the king. But the question is, is he your king? We left off last week in verse 46 of chapter 26. We're going to move through this first section rather quickly of the trial of Jesus. There's so much that we could get into and focus on in these last couple of chapters of Matthew, but because of time and because we need to get through the cross today, we want to focus especially on Christ's suffering on the cross, we're going to summarize some of the betrayal and the trial of Jesus. It's not that it's not important, but we want to consider the cross especially this morning. So after Jesus prays, Judas comes to the garden to arrest him, to finally give Jesus up. He kisses Jesus, he calls him rabbi, and they immediately start to take Jesus away. Peter, as we talked about last week, doesn't respond well to this, and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And I will point out this. Notice what Christ says there in verse 52. He says, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send a legion of more, he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What is Christ saying there? He's saying, Peter, I could put an end to this right now if I wanted to. I could have my angels come and they couldn't touch me even if they wanted to. But his hour had finally come. Scripture was about to be fulfilled. And that little detail points out what the rest of this passage is going to show us. And that is that Christ was in control the entire time. That everything was happening according to the plan of God. The soldiers coming were not disturbing the plan of God, but rather they were enacting in it. So then Christ goes to Caiaphas, the high priest, and to his house. They found witnesses to testify against him, not true witnesses. They actually couldn't find any true witnesses, so they had to find false witnesses to testify against Jesus and bring a false testimony against him. Jesus remained silent while he is accused before Caiaphas, except for in verse 64 when Jesus says, as they are questioning him and as they are asking him if he is the Christ, he says, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, signifying that he truly was God and that they would see him sitting on the right hand of God and They had enough with them, and they sent him to Pilate. In that next section, we see Peter fulfilling what Christ had prophesied about him as well. He denies Jesus three different times. At the beginning of chapter 27, we see him go to Pilate. We see Judas hang himself out of grief, out of misery for rejecting Christ. That fulfills scripture as well. And then we come to this passage in Matthew 27 where Jesus stands before Pilate, who was a governor in Judea. Many think that Caesar had it out for Pilate, that he gave Pilate this position or this post because the Jews were unruly, because they were a hard people to Governed. There had been riots, there had been uprisings within them. And we're going to see some of that even in this passage this morning. That part of why Pilate is so afraid is because he couldn't stand to have another uprising. That the last uprising that happened from the Jews brought a significant amount of discipline and subjection from Caesar. And so Pilate knew he was on thin ice. So Pilate starts questioning Jesus in verses 11 through 14, asking if he is the son of God, asking if all these things are true. And he leaves being amazed with who Christ was. And so then we come to the first scene that I want us to examine this morning. And that is the king who is rejected. The king who is rejected. Look with me at verse 15. Now at the feast of the governor... It was a custom to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When they would have the Passover, Pilate, in an effort to try to 
maintain unity and peace with the Jews and good relationships with them, he would, re- he would release one prisoner who was sentenced to death. And so the one who he chooses is Barabbas. We don't know much about this person named Barabbas. His name literally means son of a man. Yet we know that he's a notorious prisoner, or a certain prisoner, someone who is probably violent, someone who is probably a murderer, as many scholars have pointed out. It should have been an easy choice for the crowd. In fact, Barabbas probably would have left from there and gone out and been more violent and killed even more people. It was not safe to have him on the streets. Yet Pilate is testing the will of the Jewish people. Would they kill Barabbas? Would they kill this violent and wicked person? Or would they kill Jesus, who Pilate himself says, I can't find any fault in this person. Many people point out that they don't think Pilate wanted to kill Jesus. And that may be true. But as we'll see, I don't think Pilate is necessarily innocent. And so Pilate comes to the crowd and he asks them, he says, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Do you want me to release this prisoner, this wicked man? Or the one who is said to be your Messiah? And of course we know what their answer was. They say to release Barabbas and kill Christ. Now notice a very interesting detail in verse 18. Or in verse 19. Besides while he was sitting at the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered very much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's wife would always sit beside him as he was making these judgments. And she says, have nothing to do with this Jesus. I've been having dreams about him. We don't know very much of how long this had been going on or what the dreams were that his wife was having. We just know that it's an interesting detail that only Matthew includes here. This adds to the pressure, as you can imagine, being Pilate. You think Jesus is innocent. Your wife is saying, hey, don't kill Jesus. Don't have anything to do with this man. And as you all know, you want to listen to what your wife is telling you in that moment. She's saying it's going to be really bad if you do something to Jesus. But yet he hears the crowds. He hears their intensity. He asks them again, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they say, Barabbas. They want the prisoner, they want the criminal, they want the man who would be dangerous to have in the streets. And he says, what then should I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What do you want me to do with this man? Pilate doesn't think he's guilty. And they said, let him be crucified and as he continues to question them why what evil has he done they say let him be crucified the intensity of the crowds was too much for Pilate he knew that a riot was starting to break out look at verse 24 so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing that he was not able to reason with the crowds with the Jewish people 
but rather a riot was beginning. In a symbolic gesture, it says he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Pilate's saying, I don't want anything to do with this, but I'm washing my hands of all of this. And notice how they respond. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. They said, we have no problem taking responsibility for the death of Jesus. If you remember Peter's sermon in Pentecost in Acts 2, he reminds them that the blood of Jesus is on them and their children. And so it says in verse 26, he released Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The Jews' determination, their hatred for Jesus, their rejection of him symbolized the rejection of a king. But little did they know they were driving Christ to his destiny on the cross. They were willing to find false witnesses, release a guilty prisoner, and even find Jesus guilty to put him to death. The people Christ came to seek and to save the people he came to give his life as a ransom for, the people that he wanted to call his people were the ones demanding his death. Those who should have been closest to Jesus, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, were the, one cry, were the ones crying for him to be killed. The disciples, so you can see, are nowhere to be found. And in this scene, we see a king, King Jesus, who is rejected by his people. The people who cursed him, who called for his death, he would soon die for on the cross. Look with me at the second scene, the king who is mocked. The king who is mocked in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. This was probably 600 or so soldiers that would be in a battalion. It probably wasn't all of them, but those who were available at that time. It says they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. They took his garments off of him and probably one of the soldiers' robes that were there. They put on Jesus. Scarlet symbolizing royalty. It was probably the closest thing that they had to purple. They begin to mock Jesus and dress him up like a king. Notice it says they fashion or they twist together a crown of thorns. This was probably a long thorny branch that they twisted together to look like Caesar's crown that he would wear. And they shove it on Christ's head. Now remember, Christ had been beaten by the temple guards. He had been scourged right before this. He's bleeding profusely just from his other Wounds, and now he has a crown of thorns shoved on his head. It's a very gruesome scene. Thorns, obviously symbolizing the fall of man, the thorns that grew from the fall, as an interesting detail that Matthew puts here. He has a reed in his hand, symbolizing a scepter of a king. And all the soldiers that were there that were mocking Jesus kneeled before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They began to mock, praise Jesus. 
Now you may wonder why were they so determined to hate Jesus and to criticize him. It may not have even been that personal for Jesus, but rather they were mocking someone who claimed to be another king, who claimed to have some kind of authority. And it was even probably directed somewhat towards the Jews. This is who your king is, and we are going to mock him, and we are going to criticize him. It says in verse 30, they spit on him. They took the reed and struck him in the head. Spitting was the ultimate form of disgrace or insult that you could do to someone. They take the reed that they put in his hand as his scepter and they begin beating him on the head with it. They strip him of his robe again and put on him his own garments again. No doubt the wounds that were starting to close on Jesus were opening up once again. And they led him away to crucify him. Now we see Jesus mocked throughout this passage in Matthew 27. But Matthew includes for us this scene of him dressed as the king and mocked by these soldiers. Little did these soldiers know of how true their statements actually were. They mocked Jesus. They show their own wickedness in this passage. But little did they know that they were just ignorant, that Christ truly was the king. And that as in Philippians 2, we see the humiliation of Christ up until this point where he dies on the cross and then the exaltation of Christ. These same soldiers would one day praise Christ. It says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These soldiers would one day praise Christ again, but they would not be mocking him. They would be praising him as their king. They did this out of ignorance. They didn't know what they were doing to Christ. This is an ultimate form of mockery and rejection that Christ endures here. And he could have summoned his angels. He could have easily gotten out of this situation but he chose to do this for us. One day, everyone who mocks Christ, everyone who criticizes the gospel, everyone who doesn't believe that he is the king will see Christ in all of his glory and all of his majesty in heaven, and they too will bow and confess him as Lord. Look with me at the king who is crucified. The king who is crucified in verse 32. And they went out and found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. They would have the prisoners carry their cross out of the city to the outside as a form of rejection, as a form of shame. But Christ apparently was too weak, too beaten down by the soldiers to carry his own cross. The toll that the scourging took on his physical body and the mockery had almost reached its peak. And so this man, Simon of Cyrene, is found, and he begins to carry the cross for Christ. Many, including the Catholics, think this is done out of compassion for Christ, but we really can't assign a motive. We know that the soldiers made Simon do this. So he carries it out of the city to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. 
Many think it's called the place of the skull because of not only the crucifixions that would happen there, but the skull-like figure in the side of the hill. He carries his cross outside of the city to this place where he would be crucified. It says they offer him wine to drink. There's a bit of debate over this wine element. It was mixed with myrrh. Many think it was to ease his suffering or to mock Christ. I tend to lean towards the latter view that they were mocking Christ by giving him this wine mixed with gall or mixed with myrrh. It was bitter to taste. So Christ refused it. He had none of it. And it says they crucified him. This cross was a traditional cross that we are used to seeing. It could have been in the shape of an X or just a T, but it actually was the traditional cross. It was a brutal form of torture and death. One of the most violent ways to kill someone that man ever invented. They would either tie you or nail you to the cross. You would eventually die from suffocation normally. You couldn't have the strength to come up and breathe your last breath. Some prisoners hung there for several days even being crucified until they finally died. They eventually became so weak, but we know because of the coming Passover that the soldiers knew they needed to make Christ's death quick. That's probably why they nailed him to the cross. It says they cast out his garment, or they cast lots to divide his garments. The clothing and the possessions of the prisoner would belong to the soldiers, so they would cast lots and divide them out to each of them. And the soldiers would sit there all day and watch this person be crucified so that they couldn't be rescued, so that no one else could come over and take Jesus off of the cross. This ensures that Jesus actually physically died and that he was not rescued. Over his head, it says in verse 37, they put a charge against him with red. This is Jesus King of the Jews. It was customary for them to put the crime of the prisoner above their head. And in an ultimate form of mockery on a white tablet that they nailed to the top of a cross, Christ's only crime read this, that this is Jesus, King of the Jews. No doubt they were doing this to try to mock him, to mock the Jews. Look what we have done to your king. This person who claimed to be the ruler, who claimed to be the king, was now hanging on a cross. Again, imagine the irony. Imagine the irony as Jesus is hanging there upon this cross with his only charge being that he truly was the king. It says there were two robbers that were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. We don't know too much about these people. Luke has the more detailed account about each of them. But we know they were robbers, or many people think they were anarchists, rebels against the state. And they hung there with Jesus. Now they crucified people, and it would be near a roadway so that people who passed by could mock and 
deride them, and it would serve as a warning or as a symbol to the people who passed them by, not to rebel against Rome, not to test the Roman Empire, not to test Caesar. So the people who passed by, Jesus mocked him and derided him, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Testing Christ's power. If you're truly the Christ, if you truly have all this power that you say you do, then come down from this cross. Save yourself. Similar even to Satan's temptation. Jump down from this building and save yourself. When he says, you can have all the kingdom of the world without the cross if you will just worship me. This test of Jesus, this mocking of him, this save himself, which Christ obviously could have done because he is God. But Christ did not come down off the cross. But he continued to hang there for hours being crucified. He continues to be mocked. Notice that the chief priests and scribes and elders come to see Jesus on the cross. Notice what they say in verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. People couldn't deny that Christ did miracles. They saw him heal people, cast out demons. They saw his power over nature, over people, over life and death itself. And they couldn't deny that Christ had power, that he could save others. But they said he could not save himself. Notice what he says. It says, if he is a king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And we will finally trust him. The Pharisees were always seeking a sign. Christ, if you'll show us a sign, if you'll show us that you truly are the Messiah, then we will finally believe in you. All the way to the end. One more sign, Jesus. One more display of your power. And then we would believe. What rejection of Christ. What condemnation for themselves. That they had been given this ultimate revelation. They saw Christ. They saw him do all of these miracles in person. And yet it was not enough for them. We see this theme in the book of Matthew of this idea of revelation, that those who have been given revelation from God are held accountable for it. Those who see Christ and his miracles and hear his message are held accountable when they reject it, are held accountable when they reject the gospel. And yet in their final words to Jesus on the cross, they reject him even more. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And one more sign, one more display of power, and then we would believe in him. They say he trusts God. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. A quotation from Psalm 22. He said, I am the son of God. 
For he said, I am the Son of God. Notice also, the robbers mocked him as well. Now we know the thief on the cross does end up becoming a Christian, does end up trusting in Christ right before his death. So you ask yourself, why does Matthew not include this detail? Why does Matthew not show the other thief becoming a Christian, trusting in Christ? And I would say it's because of the thrust or the angle that Matthew is trying to show. He's not trying to show the goodness of humanity in his account of the cross, but he's rather showing the wickedness of man and the rejection of Christ. And so he only shows how the robbers reviled Jesus and criticized him on the cross. Here in this passage, we see the wickedness of man on full display as they deride Jesus on the cross, as they reject him again and again, as they mock the plan of God. But yet it's also in this passage that we see the plan of God, that we see the will of God on display as well, that Christ hung there, that he endured this persecution and this suffering, that he refused to come down from the cross. And why do you think he did that? Why do you think he hung there for hours and suffered this persecution and suffered this suffering? Why do you think Christ did that? He did that for us. Because he knew that if he was not the sacrifice, he knew if he did not endure this persecution and this shame, that there would be no salvation for all people. So he hung there for you, and he hung there for me, being crucified on a cross. It reminds me of what Paul tells us in Romans. When he gives us confidence in our salvation, he says, what can we say if God was not willing to even spare his own son? God didn't spare his own son, but he kept him on that cross. And he did this for you and for me. Notice with me, fourthly, the king who dies. The king who dies. As they went out, they found a man of... Actually, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. There's some geographic and some natural events that happen during this crucifixion. The first one is this darkness. And it was darkness. It was noticeable darkness that stretched over the entire area. And in about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's interesting that the Gospels record this cry in different languages, some in Hebrew, some in Aramaic. Matthew records it in Hebrew, highlighting Christ's Jewish lineage. It's a quotation from Psalm 22. Christ calling out to God, asking God, why have you forsaken me? This signifies the weight of Christ's abandonment. That he hung on that cross and many think it was at this moment that Christ was feeling the full weight of our sin. 
the full weight of our sin that was thrust on him on this cross. Christ did not cease to be God in this moment, but rather he feels the full abandonment of God because as we know, God is holy. God cannot stand the sight of sin. It signifies that the presence of God was gone. The people who are looking on this scene, the bystanders, say this man is calling Elijah. This man is calling for someone else. Elijah, because he was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, many of the Jewish people thought he was some kind of superhero. They know that he didn't die. They thought maybe you can call Elijah and he will come down and rescue you. If Christ was abandoned by God, maybe he is calling Elijah to come and rescue him from this suffering. That's not what Christ was doing, but rather Christ is calling out to God, asking, why have you abandoned me? In verse 48, one of them ran and took a sponge on a reed and gave it to him to drink this wine mixed with vinegar. Again, I think as a sign of mocking Jesus. It was too bitter for him to drink. Verse 49, others said, wait and let us see whether Elijah will come to save him, whether Elijah will indeed come and rescue Christ from the cross. And then notice verse 50, such an important verse. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirits. There's seven sayings that Christ uttered while he was on the cross. So we put the Gospels together, seven different statements that he makes. Many believe that it's what we find in Luke when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirits. But notice the verbiage. Notice how Matthew says this. He cries out in this loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. Did the Romans take Christ's life away from him? Did the Romans take away Christ's life and kill him? No, it was Christ who yielded up his own spirit. Even to the end. Who was in control? Who was obedient even to the point of death? It was Christ. Christ only died because he yielded up his own spirit, because he gave of his own life. Christ's life wasn't taken from him, but rather he gave up his life willingly as a sacrifice for us. And so Christ dies. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. We know from other accounts that a spear was shoved into his side and blood and water came out signifying that he had indeed died. Notice the shockwaves that this caused in verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the whole earth shook. This was probably the curtain that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, signifying that this mystery had come to be. That there is now one unified people that there was no longer this barrier between Jews and Gentiles there's no longer this 
sacrificial system that was needed between God and man. There's an earthquake. It says rocks were split and tombs were opened. This is an interesting fact that only Matthew has here, that these tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were also raised. That people start walking out of their graves. Now, because Matthew's the only one who includes this detail, we don't know much about it. We don't know if this happened after the resurrection. We don't know if this happened right now. All that we know is that the bodies were raised, and it says in coming out of their tombs after the resurrection, <clears throat> they went into the holy city. Whatever happened, whenever they were raised, they apparently waited until after the resurrection of Christ. But Matthew shows us this detail here to indicate the power of God. This, these natural events that happen, that take place from this earthquake. Notice with me verse 54. When the centurion and all those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. It wasn't just the centurion He's the most noticeable of them all, but it's all the people who were there were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, at that moment where they saved to become followers of Christ, the text does not say. We can hope so, but the text doesn't say. All that it says is that they said, truly, this was the Son of God. That this person, that this Jesus was not an ordinary man. But with everything else taking place, he really was deity. Imagine being just a normal soldier looking on this scene of Christ dying. There's darkness everywhere. He's crying out. And after he finally dies, there's an earthquake. The veil is torn in two. Later, people are coming out of their graves I would be very nervous. I would be very afraid. There were also many women there looking out from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. These women who followed Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Probably Christ's aunt, Mary, the mother of Clopas. Other accounts recognize that probably Jesus' mother was there as well. Matthew's including this here to set up what would happen later in the resurrection. But they were there to watch the death of Christ. See Christ take his last breath on earth and give up his life willingly for us. To yield his spirit to God. He's recognized by others who are watching as the Son of God. I told you, as you read this passage, you can only see Jesus as exactly who he said he was. Notice with me finally the king who is buried. When it was evening, the sun apparently had come out again from the darkness because it's noticeably evening now. They take Jesus off the cross and Joseph of Arimathea, who is a rich man, who was a secret disciple of 
Christ, he approaches Pilate about the body. Many think that Pilate gave it to him because Joseph was a very influential person, because he had this authority. But for whatever reason, Pilate gave the body to Joseph, and Joseph wrapped it and cleaned it and laid it in his own new tomb. He lays this body to rest. And we'll talk more about this tomb next week as we study the resurrection. He rolls a stone in front of the tomb, something that would be easy to do as you're putting the body into the tomb, but almost impossible to roll away. And the woman were sitting there watching. And we're given one more detail in Matthew 27. It's the, on that Saturday. After all this had taken place the next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees were worried about what Christ had said. You see, Christ had said often, after three days of me dying, I will rise again. And so they start paying attention and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, give an order to the tomb and to be, make sure, to be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he is risen from the dead. More guards and more people are put in front of the tomb to stop the disciples from stealing the body of Christ. One final attempt to thwart the plan of God. And so Pilate says in verse 65, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. He says, Go use your own temple guards and put as many of them as you can to make sure that this doesn't happen. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. One final attempt at thwarting the plan of God as Jesus is buried. What does the death of Christ mean for us as believers? What does it mean that Christ died for us? As we close this morning, I want to consider seven different aspects of the death of Christ and what that means for us. First of all, we are no longer subject to God's wrath. That Christ on that cross took our sin and absorbed the full wrath of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are no longer subject to the wrath of God. But he paid the penalty for you and for me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if Jesus is your king, it means we no longer must serve sin. That power that sin would still have over us, we no longer have to serve. We no longer have to obey sin. But through Christ, we've been given victory over sin and death. Because of what Christ did on the cross, number three, we can do good works, as it says in Titus. We're not saved by good works, but rather because of salvation, we are able to do good works in Christ. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we can have our identity in Christ. We no longer have to be described or known for what the world would say about us, for our past sinful actions, for our social status, for 
who our family is, who we're related to, what our occupation is, what our race is. But rather, we can have our identity in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if he is your king, then we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, comforting us, illuminating scripture to us, giving us guidance, giving us direction. We have the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we belong to God as adopted children. He's your father. We are his children, co-heirs with Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you will be united with Christ, lastly, in eternity forever. Now there's more, there's so much more that we could say, but when Christ died on the cross, he made all these things available for us. He died on the cross so that we be united with him forever. So as we close this morning, I close with one simple question. Is he your king? There's so much we'll talk about next week with the resurrection of Christ, and that's a very exciting and hopeful thing for us to study. But it's important for us to remember the cross of Christ as well. And continue to ask ourselves, is he your king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son and what he has done for us on the cross, for his sacrifice for our sins. Father, help us to live in light of that sacrifice each and every day. Help us to be thankful for what your son has done for us and to live as children of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.